Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Alack, why am I sent for to a king? Before I have shook off the regal thoughts wherewith I reigned. I hardly yet have learned to insinuate, flatter, bow and bend my knee. Give sorrow leave a while to tutor me to this submission. Yet I well remember the favours of these men. Were they not mine? Did they not sometime cry, all hail to me? So Judas did to Christ, but he in twelve found truth in all but one. I in twelve thousand, none. Hello and welcome to The Plays the Thing. You have joined us for Act Four of William Shakespeare's Richard II. I am Tim McIntosh. And I'm Heidi White. And we are so glad that you have joined us. We are recording this, ladies and gentlemen, on Inauguration Day in the United States. And Heidi very capably pointed out that today's act is all about the transfer of power. That's right. Richard II and Bolingbroke soon to be, if he has his way, we don't know if he's going to have his way until Act 5, Bolingbroke. So is Richard II going to peacefully transfer power to Bolingbroke, and I hmm. don't know if there's a more um, ripe act to discuss on Inauguration Day in the United States, given the circumstances of the last couple of weeks, than Act Four of Richard II. Agreed. It's it's a remarkable coincidence, and you and I are going to feel that the power of that during our conversation. Of course, this is going to uh, be posted a couple weeks from now. And so by the time you, our listeners, are hearing this, it will have been a couple weeks into the presidency of President Joe Biden. Right. Uh, but that's brand new for us today. And so yeah. you're getting our fresh thoughts and responses as mirrored. A, a mirror plays actually a very big part in this act. Yeah, it does. Uh, but as mirrored in Richard II. What a, what a remarkable coincidence that it is. Heidi, um, you know, uh, we have been kind of reluctant. We sometimes, you know, share our political views, but um, we've been 
very deliberately quiet about, you know, everything that's happened during the exit of President Trump and the ascension of newly elected President Biden. Um, you know, we're trying to kind of like walk a fine line on the Facebook page in public utterances. But this is not to say that you and I don't have strong political opinions about, you know, what's going on. And so I think I'd just like to ask you right now, what are your political opinions about everything? Oh my goodness, Tim (laughs) McIntosh, that's enough. Stand down. Um, So for all of our listeners who are holding their breath and wincing right now, I am, I, I, I will reveal nothing. I will say nothing (laughs) about my political opinions, Uh, but I will be very transparent that the, uh, the unease that is so predominant, almost like a character in the play, I think is something that I certainly have felt this year. Um, And watching the events of 2020 on on the political scale unfold, I I have, I have felt the weight of that unease myself. Um, And and I, I think that that's what makes it so particularly poignant, why there's such pathos in reading about the transfer of power and the, the emotion of that, both, is, uh, both between the kings and the men um, on a human level and a political scale in this play just feels so relevant. Like who says literature and particularly Shakespeare aren't relevant? Like this is relevant. Yeah. Um, it can be none more relevant. Man, it just really speaks to the human condition on the political scale and the personal scale. So I do not ask you the question back, although I'm pretty sure your answer would be very similar to mine. Yeah, so. yeah it would. I uh, so Just kidding, folks. We're not going to talk about politics. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have a friend that I saw last week, an African-American guy, he's maybe 35, and... Um, we both happened to be at this coffee shop where we met in Stone Mountain, Georgia. And I was really happy to see him because I hadn't seen him in a few weeks, maybe even a month. And I walked in, I was like, Hey, Matt, how are you doing? Matt, I just got to ask you, like, what do you think about what happened with the Capitol? And he, for reasons that like, just <laughs> his response was really interesting to me because he took 10 minutes to not say anything to me. Like we're not close enough friends that he is just going to reveal everything that he, um, you know, everything that he thinks about January 6th. So like, we were doing this dance back and forth where he was kind of like, do I really know this guy, Tim, well enough to say my opinion? No, I don't. I don't know Tim well enough to say his opinion. You and I, Heidi, probably know each other well enough to share our opinions. Um, right. Maybe not on the air. We're not going to do it on the air. We're not going to do it on the air. So, um, okay. So that's the backdrop, both like, like in real time, this is inauguration day in the United States and the backdrop in Richard, the, the third, excuse me, the second is when we last left Richard, the second, his forces were being defeated by Brolin, Bolingbroke. Now remember back at the beginning of the play, Heidi, Bolingbroke, has been cast out by Richard II. They're cousins, they have this relationship, but Bolingbroke is clearly a, he's a dangerous enough threat that Richard moves him off mm-hmm. the scene. Bolingbroke comes back when Richard illegally. II, illegally, yes. mm-hmm. when Richard II is um, invading Ireland, 
Richard II comes back and some of his troops have been um, anxiously awaiting his return because Bolingbroke is making his move, right? It's about to happen. And it does happen. Bolingbroke kind of ascends as close as he can to the throne. Richard realizes that he is defeated on the battlefield and thus he is going to have to turn over his crown. So he, so when we end act three, the crown is not really transferred yet to Bolingbroke. Um, but Richard II is imprisoned. A couple of his men, more than a couple have been executed. And now it's about the formalities. Now it's about, is Richard going to turn over the crown? To some degree, he has no choice whatsoever, right? He's at the point of the spear. He can't say no and keep his life. He's going to have to say yes. But what I found really interesting is that, and I want to ask you about this, Heidi, Bolingbroke really wants Richard II to give his verbal assent, mm-hmm. doesn't he? So He does. He needs it. Can you tell us what's going on there? Why, why is it so important for Bolingbroke? If he took the, the crown by mm-hmm. force, why is it so important for him to get the crown by Richard's verbal assent? Yeah, that I mean, that is a big question in the play. And the answer is political, as these kinds of answers always are, right? Uh, if Bolingbroke is to seize the crown, then he would be a usurper. Uh, mm. And it would be very difficult for him then to bring the country under control, especially since uh, we have a very strong sense in the medieval, the high medieval era of the divine right of kings. Now that is an anachronism because the divine right of kings as a phrase wasn't invented until Elizabethan times, actually during the reign of Shakespeare. So Shakespeare is exploring in this play, very relevant current uh, questions of kingship and leadership for his own time. It was indeed uh, James the first who had such a strong sense of the divine right of kings. And um, we're at the end of the Tudor period at this time, James isn't on the throne yet. This is during the reign of queen Elizabeth uh, when the, when the play was published and originally aired. Interestingly, on a side note, can I just say a really interesting kind of like Shakespearean fact here? So, this is the only one of Shakespeare's plays. You probably already know this, but for the interest of our listeners, this is the only one of Shakespeare's plays that was ever actually used in a political plot. Uh, the Earl of Essex, who is a favorite of, of Queen Elizabeth, her last favorite, and of course, yeah. favorite is code for lover, right? At least uh-huh. what we think may be true, uh, that she had this favorite, Earl of Essex, who ended up plotting against her. And in his plot against the queen, he uh, recruited the Lord Chamberlain's men, Shakespeare's actors, uh, to put on a production of Richard II in the public square. I had no uh, idea. In hopes of kind of riling up public sentiment over to the favor of plotting against the monarch. Now, in this plot completely failed utterly, uh, Queen Elizabeth got wind of it and was able to easily quash it. And then the Earl of Essex was indeed put in the tower and then executed. Um, And then she ended up uh, having the Lord Chamberlain's men kind of taken through the ringer and interrogated. And it came out that they, uh, at least in the historical record, we see that they were very likely innocent. They were just paid, you know, they were, they were just the labor, right. They didn't know why. And their defense, and this is interesting, their defense 
was that the play was so unpopular and would be so unlikely to appeal to the masses that they didn't even want to ever do it in the first place and they had to get paid to do it. Um, And so this was kind of their underhanded way of saying, hey, we know that though this kind of political play would never work to the masses because nobody would ever want to plot against a rightful heir to the throne and an an entrenched monarch and all that kind of thing. So they got away with it. um, And it was really very, very likely that they were completely innocent and they were just, you know, just paid to do the work. Um, That's a really novel defense. Our defense is our our, our artistic output was so poor yes. that we ought not suffer any penalty. I know. We were so, like, the thing that we were performing was so bad, we ought not suffer any right. sort of. And of course, I, as I've said on the air before, this is the play that um, that Queen Elizabeth stormed out of saying, no, you not, I am Richard. So this idea of the usurping of the king, the unseating of a divinely appointed monarch, uh, although not as... Uh, controversial uh, or not as firmly entrenched in the high medieval era as it was later during the reign of Queen Elizabeth um, and James I. This was a major political question in Shakespeare's time. It was very bold of him to write a play like this. Uh, But during the high medieval times, kingship, there was a sense of the divine right of kings, and we see it in Richard. Um, But even more than that, it was a very pragmatic time for kings. Uh, it was a time when kings had to hold on by being popular both with the people and with the nobles. And both of those things Richard failed at miserably. He was terribly unpopular um, with the common man. And of course, as we see in the play, terribly unpopular also with his own nobles because he kept taking their money. Mm. Um, so, uh, but, but all that being said, when Bolingbroke comes on the scene and sets it up so that he will eventually take the uh, the kingship, take the crown from Richard. This is at this point in the play in Act Four. It's it's still a little bit of a question mark as we're opening Act Four, right? Because all that Bolingbroke has said up to this point, he keeps saying, "I don't want to be the king. I just want my mm. land back. I just mm. want my titles back. You took them unlawfully from my father, and so I have to come and get my patrimony back." So his claim up to this point has always been, "This isn't about the crown. This is about me being the Duke of Lancaster again and getting my land and my money back." And that's what happened in Act Three. Uh, well, in Act Three, they storm the castle. He's in uh, Richard is in uh, the is in Flint Castle, which this is true. This actually happened. He was in Flint Castle, imprisoned there by the Duke of York, um, and the uh, and in and Bolingbroke's guys, uh, most of whom were nobles who had uh, who had left Richard's side and gone to fight uh, on Bolingbroke's side because they're scared. They're scared the king's going to come for their money the same way he came for Gaunt's money. Mm. But the whole point up to this point is I don't want the crown. I just want my patrimony. And so what Bolingbroke needs is Richard to resign the crown because then he could come in and innocently say, well, I guess I'm next in line. I guess I'll take it. Uh Right. So that's why he insists so strongly. So anyway, long answer to your really straightforward question, but it did kind of need a little bit of that background. Yeah. There's a lot of historical context that needs to be supplied. A lot lot of of intrigue. intrigue. So. He needs, Bolingbroke needs Richard to basically acquiesce and sign off. To resign. And to yes. resign, to give mm. him the crown. Yeah, he though, can't be seen as taking it. Yes, right. So 
halfway through our scene, and it's kind of nice. Today we get to say scene and act interchangeably because act four is one long scene. There's not unusual in Shakespeare. It's very unusual. Yeah. So in this scene act, um, Bolingbroke is kind of like, so, bro, you ready to kind of, you know, sign off on this? And he summons Richard to uh, court publicly. And that's what we heard at the very top of the show. We heard Richard being kind of pulled from prison. Alack, why am I sent for to a king before I have shook off the regal thoughts wherein I reigned? I, I hardly yet have learned to insinuate, flatter, bow, and bend my limbs. So it's time for Richard to hand over the crown. And does he do it, Heidi? What, 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 what's happening here in the middle of the scene? There's this funny kind of dance going on between Richard and Bolingbroke. Yeah. This is a terribly sad, sad scene. It's a very, it's a very emotional scene. It's a very subtle psychological study between these two competing monarchs. Um, and then of course there's, there's the backdrop of all of this, you know, the politics of a nation as well as the psychology of two men um, that are, that's played on each other in this scene. It's a, uh, it's an incredible scene. Like it's just, I keep saying, I, you know, I'm Richard II's biggest apologist. I keep saying this play is a masterpiece. And I think this particular scene is just so powerful. Mm, mm. Um, And we don't have time to do a line by line study. uh, But if, if ever there is the time, it is, it's a good one to do, for sure. I'd like to read uh, two groupings of line, first from the Duke of York and then from Richard II. The Duke of York um, is asked by Richard, to do what service am I sent for hither? So Richard's like, tell me, Duke, what am I here for? The I'm Duke here, responds, yeah. to do that office of thine own goodwill I want to underline, of thine own goodwill, says the Duke, which tired majesty did make the offer, the resignation of thy state and crown to Henry Bolingbroke. Richard responds, give me the crown. Now, listeners need to kind of like be able to picture what's going on because Mm -hmm. we've talked often about how Shakespeare rarely writes stage directions into his play. He writes his stage directions into the dialogue. And this is a great example. Richard says, give me the crown. So he takes the crown from someone that's not Bolingbroke. You know, it's it's on a velvet pillow held by some orderly. Here, cousin, seize the crown. Here, cousin, on this side, my hand, and on that side, yours. Now, I just want to say, like, listeners, picture all of the action that can take place in just these simple lines. Like, this should really last about 60 seconds on stage, if not longer. But it takes about five seconds to read, right? So, give me the crown. The crown is supplied to him. Here, cousin... Seize the crown. Next line, here, cousin. So it's clear when he when when Richard says, "Here, cousin, seize the crown." Henry's not taking the crown. Bolingbroke is not taking the crown. So Richard says it again, "Here, cousin." And I saw this production, uh, this the same production that we heard at the top of the show 
of David Tennant playing Richard II. And the second time he says, here, cousin, he says it almost as if he's beckoning a dog. Hmm. So he says, here, cousin, seize the crown. Here, cousin. And it's a little bit of a laugh line, but it's also this, like, I think it's a really great decision by David Mm -hmm. Tennant to kind of, he's jabbing at Bolingbroke, even Mm -hmm. as he's like offering him the power. And of course, he says, seize the crown. He doesn't say, I give you the crown. He says, seize it, because he knows he knows seizing the crown is the exact thing that Bolingbroke does not want to do. He does not want to seize it. He wants to accept it. He wants it to be given to him. The scene goes on. Now is this golden, oh, so excuse me, on this side, my hand, and on that side, yours. Now is this golden crown like a deep well that owes two buckets, filling one another, the emptier ever dancing in the air, the other down, unseen and full of water. That bucket down and full of tears am I, drinking my grease while you mount up on high. So at least for a moment, it seems according to these stage directions, Bolingbroke does take the crown and Richard does not let go of it. So there's this wonderful moment on this side, my hand, and on that side, yours, they're both holding the crown, like this, like this moment that the rule of the monarch, the rule of England is literally kind of like being tugged at between these two rulers. No, either one is letting go. But finally, mm-hmm. Richard seems to assent, and he allows Bolingbroke to, to take the crown. Um, Heidi, why is he so reluctant to resign? Why is Richard so reluctant to resign? Oh, it's such an incredible question. I, I think that, like I said, this this scene requires actors, readers, playgoers to make interpretive decisions uh, that are, you know, all of Shakespeare requires interpretive decisions, but there's something about these history plays, and I think this is one of the most poignant examples of that, um, in which there's multiple ways to interpret someone's heart and someone's mm-hmm. actions, right? And and this scene has that. There's this ambiguity to it, and there's this ambivalence on both of their parts. Uh, to they, it's almost as though, hmm, how do I put this? As though they've been playing. As though they've been playing a game, right? And and one of them's going to win, and one's going to lose. But then at the moment of the transfer of power, at the moment when the victor is crowned, it's, it's almost as if both of them, even Bolingbroke, who's so cold and calculating, but it's and pragmatic, right? And it's almost as though both of them are suddenly awakened to what's at stake mm. and to what it means, mm. right? For like Bolingbroke, he'd the play never actually tells us that he was plotting against Richard the whole time. Mm. I, we can assume that we can, most productions play it like that as though he's ambitious. And this was all part of this chess game. Right. But the play itself doesn't tell us that. Right. So that's an interpretive decision uh, that we make, but it really could be, you could play Bolingbroke as just wanting his land back And then this kind of stumbles upon him 
hit into his lap and he has to decide what to do with it. And with Richard, I'm even more intrigued by Richard because I keep, I keep wondering what happens. Like, why, why are you not fighting for your crown more? What, what, why not? Like, there's, there's no, even in the historical record, this is true. And I think Shakespeare wrote this masterfully that there is no compelling historical reason why Richard just gave up the crown. Mm. He just gave it up. Yeah. And, and the question then becomes why, right? And I think Shakespeare is so brilliant that he doesn't actually ever tell us. Mm. He makes the king into, he's a bad king, but he is an incredible poet and this like very, very like introspective kind of soul, and he has these wonderful speeches, by far the language of Richard II, some of the most beautiful language in Shakespeare. And it's certainly the most beautiful language in this play. Bolingbroke has nothing like the ability of Richard to craft right. a speech, right? Harold Bloom has this line that Richard II is a bad king, but a wonderful poet. But a, it's true. A good poet. Yeah, I think it is true. It's totally true. And, and the contrast between his Richard's ability to speak um, and Bolingbroke's ability to speak. I mean, Bolingbroke's like very pragmatic. He's very, uh, he's, he's trustworthy. Um, and you can interpret him as scheming and manipulative, or you can interpret him as like just pragmatically available to whatever opportunity is there. And he is next in line for the throne. So if Richard wants to come in and give some beautiful speech and hand him the crown, he's game, right? So this, but the psychology keeps, I think, coming back to why is Richard laying down the crown? And mm -hmm. I'm curious what you think. This is also called the most lamentable tragedy of Richard II. So it's intended not just huh. as a history, but also as a tragedy. And yeah. of course, uh, according to tragic tradition, we have a highborn character in a tragedy who starts at the top of the Wheel of Fortune throughout the play is brought to the bottom. And all of that is completely true here in Richard II. And the, but another criteria for a classical tragedy is that the main character has to have a fatal flaw, mm. right? something that brings about his own downfall against his own will like some kind of blind spot in his life or in his character. We see that in Macbeth and Hamlet, right? And so my question then to you, this is a real question because I have given this a lot of thought and I'd love to hear your thoughts. What is Richard's fatal flaw if this yeah. is a tragedy? Do you have any thoughts on that? My thought is that Richard mistakes his office for his humanity. For his identity, yeah. For his uh, identity. Hmm. And so, last act, act three, he begins full of confidence in his own glory, glorious state, which is the state of being a king. Hmm. And when he realizes that his power has been lost on the battlefield... He gives one of the most beautiful speeches in Shakespeare in which he finally recognizes, no, he's a human being. Like, why do you greet me as a king? I'm just like you. And I think that even though we see that last act, that kind of realization, I don't think that he so swiftly shakes off all of that kind of glory of his office just because he's been deposed. Like, I think he'd still, the residue of his former office is still hanging on him. And I think, I think he both 
is reluctant to give the crown because he re- he still believes like he'd be giving away his person when he does that. And I think a part of him also believes that by giving away his crown, he's welcoming his own humanity by giving all of these rights and responsibilities away. And I think he kind of wants that. I think he wants to kind of welcome his own humanity. So I want to read his final monologue while he's in court before he returns to jail. So even in these first lines, you can hear that he's not really ready to let go. Bolingbroke, are you contented to resign the crown? Richard, I, no, no, I, for I must nothing be. Therefore, no, no, for I resign to thee. Now, mark me how I will undo myself. I give this heavy weight from off my crown and this unwieldy scepter from my hand, the pride of kingly sway from out of my heart. With my own tears, I wash away my balm. With my own hands, I give away my crown. With my own tongue, deny my sacred state. With mine own breath, release all duties, rights, all pomp and majesty, I do forswear my manners, rents, revenues, I do forego. My acts, decrees, and statutes, I deny. God pardon all those that are broke to me. God keep all vows unbroke that swear to thee. Make me that nothing have with nothing grieved. And thou with all please thou hast all achieved. So in this, in this closing transfer of power, I hear Richard saying, first off, he's torn. I, no, no. I. And then finally, he kind of gives in. You have to clarify the I there because it's super important. Yeah, it's right? not capital I. It's not that, well, there's an interchange though, right? That's the whole, the whole thing about oh. pronouns is so important in this play. All of the pronouns in this speech that you just read are all personal pronouns. There's no royal we, mm. right? And that's really important mm-hmm. in this speech. Also, to your point that you just made, that when he says, I, no, no, I, the I there is a Y as in mm-hmm. yes, Ascent. yes, no, no, yes, right? Yeah. But it's also interchangeable with I, the, the pronoun I, right? So he's, he's receiving his own identity in saying, yes, he's becoming I, not we. He's laying down kingship and taking up personhood. And, but who is he if he's not the king? That's the whole thing he's wrestling with. And then at the end of the speech, right where you broke off, mm-hmm. right where you broke mm-hmm. off, he switches to the third person again. Notice that. So exactly. So you read the last line you and read. That was, was, and that was all that was all, all, achieved. all achieved. The next line, he refers to himself in the third person. Mm. Long mayest thou live in Richard's seat to sit and soon lie Richard in an earthy pit. God save King Henry, unkinged Richard says, and send him many years of sunshine days. What more remains? It's so like yeah. this speech is so powerful because he, again, he leaves off the, the we pronoun, the royal we, he takes on the pronoun I, and then he can't even speak of himself when he's talking about himself as a king anymore. It's so displaced and dehumanized right now. He's just Richard. The man who was the king is Richard. Yeah. And then the last question, poignant question, full of pathos, what then remains? Yeah. Yeah. It's so powerful, this whole speech. And it just speaks to 
to your exact point. I love that, that he can't, he doesn't know how to separate the office from the man. He doesn't know who he is if he's not the king. And, um, and, and yet he has, he has to face that and he predicts his own death here. I'm going to soon be in an earthy mm. pit, Richard lies, right? He, he doesn't, believe he can live and and that that may speak to his fear of assassination but i think it also speaks to his very profound sense of having no identity if he's not the king is that by the by the way i just want to say i did not notice that about him switching into the third person kind of after he has given his mm-hmm. assent that's a really keen observation heidi Throughout- i don't think he ever gives his assent i think he's forced well, he gives his assent, like I've said before, mm-hmm. yeah, verbally. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, does, and he, you're right; he doesn't have any choice. He's he's forced. But I think he does kind of just like, regardless of what is in his heart, he goes through the traditional or, or the yeah. non-traditional transfer of power. Right. Um. Why is Richard so so? Do you think that the sorrows, which Richard talks a lot about in this scene, mm-hmm. your cares set up, do not pluck my cares down. My care is loss of care, my old care down. Is, is Richard's sorrow because of his loss of the crown? Is that what's going on here? Is that why he's so sad? So I love that question because that speaks to what I, my personal theory of his great sin, like his, his fatal flaw. So Richard never gets angry. Mm. He is, he never, he, he never defends his right to the throne in any kind of like military way. He's not good with that. In fact, in fact, and this is, um, I think his sin is despair and acedia sloth. Um, and I base that on a couple things. One is the fact that his his emotive language is entirely sadness, never mm. anger um, or pride, right? Or any kind of assumption of personal merit. Um, and there's no doubt that in, in terms of personal merit, Bolingbroke is a better king. Like he right. has more natural ability. Um, he's more leadership ability. He has the power to command the hearts of men um, and to earn their respect. Um, nobody seems to really like Bolingbroke, but everyone seems to respect him. Right. Mm. Um, and, and Richard, however, is uh, alternately either despairing or charming. Right. But not really a great leader. Yeah. Um, and even his acts of leadership in the beginning of the play, banishing um, at the tournament at, in Act One, that's so theatrical, right? It's not. It's not. Um, it's not like this well thought out kind of pragmatic leadership like Bolingbroke shows. Like and he's presented with a problem and he by necessity comes up with the best solution and, and puts it into practice. Yeah. Um, that's Bolingbroke. Whereas with Richard, it's like this very theatrical, I'm gonna do it in front of everybody at, you know, at a big party at the tournament. Yeah. Right. Um and and then also a couple times, both Salisbury and O'Murrell, his loyal his uh, his loyal deputies give him advice on how to handle the rebellion that's coming against him. Mm. Um, and he turns it down both times 
citing the divine right of kings. Mm. Like he doesn't act, right? So Omoral gives them some really good advice. You know, instead of splitting up your army, you need to stay together. You need to go over here and, and meet him head on. And, and Richard's like, no, I'm going to stay right where I am because I'm the king and God will protect me. Yeah. That's essentially his response. Yeah. So he seems to be like allergic to any kind of direct action and instead relying on, to your point, his identity as the king um, and, his, and, and the protection of God. And then when that seems to be challenged in any way, in the play, he just shuts down. He just gives up in despair. He never takes action. So this is what I was going to ask you. I was going to say, why acedia? Why despair? And why not just laziness? Right. Um, well, and I think laziness is certainly a part of sloth. But the so in in the classical Christian understanding of the vice of sloth is one of the seven deadly sins. Uh, the the, the core of that vice is the pro, is a problem of love. All of the vices, all seven of the vices, um, at, at their core, is a, yes, they're distorted love. Right, and and sloth in classical Christianity is a failure to love what ought to be loved. Mm. Right, and along with that, then is the failure to act. Mm. Uh, uh, in order to defend or protect or find or keep or create what's worthy to be loved. So in modern times, we would say kingship is not something that ought to be loved, right? Yeah, yeah. Like that's, that's a, but we're moderns. We're not medievals and we're not Elizabethans, both of whom would have said that kingship and leadership ought to be loved. They're good things ordained by God mm. in the hierarchy of being human. And so I think that my theory is that Richard's great failure, his great sin, is that he fails to love what ought to be loved, his own identity, his own role, his own, uh, he relies so much on his identity, rather, that he won't own the role and love the role and fight for it, either by keeping it in a military sense or by being a good king at the beginning of the play. And I think that's how those two distorted, uh, divided pictures of Richard that we get at the beginning of the play. His problem is that he's a bad king. Right. Like he doesn't love it enough to do a good job. Yeah. And then in the second half, uh, it's still a, a problem of sloth. He doesn't love kingship enough to defend it and to fight for it. And so in both of those two ways, the failure to be a good king and the failure to fight to be the king, he has failed to love kingship, um, which is, I think, inseparable to his identity, according to this kind of theological and cultural construct of the time. And so in that way, I think that's his great failure. And then Bolingbroke, who doesn't actually, um, who, who isn't supposed to be the king, is then able to come in and take it from him. Yeah. So that's my whole thing. Heidi, that's, a really, com- that's really compelling. Um, so I, I'm going to say it back to you. Like it, it, I'm going to say it back to you as Tim. So, so my point of view is, he doesn't dis- make any sort of dis- he takes his identity from his office he thinks of him as a king and thus sort of like set apart and unique from humanity your view is not profoundly different than that but there's a really mm-hmm. important distinction that you're drawing and that distinction is no richard should love the 
office. He should seek the office and he should seek um, to fulfill that office as a human being. And thus, you know, there's nothing wrong with him um, kind of like celebrating his position because that is a high calling. He was placed in that position by God. The effects of that calling are profound. Every single one of his subjects will benefit if he's a good king. They will all suffer if he's a bad king. So his, so his, his failure, his despair is kind of, strangely enough, it's not taking the office seriously enough in a way. Yes. Yes. It's not loving the good enough, the yeah. good of being the king, right? That's really then, profound, Heidi. That's really profound. And in that sense, I think that if I were writing this play, then, which is, you know, I could never write a play this good, sadly, but maybe you can. But um, but then Bolingbroke, I think Shakespeare, if I'm right, I think Shakespeare paints Bolingbroke exactly right then mm. as like a king of great merit, but incapable, like kind of coldly incapable of love, right? We never see any kind of passion or zeal in Bolingbroke, even when he is Richard, or excuse me, even when he's Henry the fourth later on down the road, right. he still always maintains this very pragmatic, distant um, kind of shell, right? Yeah. And and whereas Richard is so full of emotion, but that emotion is never oriented towards anything beyond himself and and what it ought to be, which is his people and the role of being the king. And I really don't believe in the divine right of kings, but I do un, I do understand it from the Elizabethan perspective. And I do think that that's true of leadership even today, that mm. if you are a leader, if you do inhabit a role of leadership, you you ought to take that seriously and and love it for what it is and for what you could do through it. And and Richard never does that. He's right. so self-absorbed and he's so prone to despair. Um, and he doesn't love any of the good things that he could do through being the king. Right, right. Yeah, that's great, Heidi. The conclusion of the act um, is a foreshadowing that we're not quite out of the woods yet. So the crown has been transferred, right? It's on Bolingbroke's head at the end of act four. We should expect to see the beginning of act five when we see Bolingbroke, even the type in the books will be different. He will no longer be Bolingbroke, but he'll be king. He'll now be the king, King Henry. So the transfer of power has taken place, but as you would expect, not all of the players are content with the new situation. And we have three plotters who are going to show up in act five because they are not happy with what's gone down. So those of you who are reading ahead or watching uh, production of the play, that's a little bit of foreshadowing that um, there's still work to be done yet to make sure that the power is secure in newly King Henry's uh, hands. I also, readers should look forward in Act 5 for a little glimpse of Henry V. And mm. we will even see a glimpse of Henry IV Part 1. There's a famous scene, Henry IV Part 1, between uh, Henry V as a young man having a lot of fun uh, at a bar, at a salon. A saloon. 
Um, and at the end of Act Five, we kind of see Henry, newly crowned King Henry the Fourth, asking about his son. Like, is he still at the bar? Is that what's going on with him? So we get a little introduction to like, kind of like the next couple rulers of uh, England at that point. That's, that's that's something to kind of keep an eye out for readers. Um, Heidi, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping before I ask you uh, for some thoughts as we go into Act 5. So those of you who um, listen to this show regularly, if you've listened to the first three acts of this play, there's been no like real change about the play's the thing, um, the umbrella that it's under, which is the Circe Institute. But if you've been listening to Close Reach, which is kind of like the mothership podcast, the podcast that some other of the, some other podcasts like the plays the thing is sprung out from, um, David and Bethany Kern have begun a business that is going to handle kind of the production aspect of Close Reads. So the the kind of business keeping stuff that I want to mention here on the air, Heidi, is that the plays the thing will continue to be provided under the umbrella of the Searcy Institute. It makes no real difference for our listeners, except for with regards to if you want to continue to support Searcy financially and you like listen to the plays, the thing regularly, and you also want to support what David and Heidi and Sarah Jane and I and all the rest do on close reads. These are now kind of two different um, for lack of a better word, support avenues. There, there are two different support avenues support these two different things. So if you want to continue to support Circe through the plays, the thing, then you would make donations toward Circe. If you want to support close reads, then that will be handled through the Patreon account that we have long had associated with close reads. I had one other business thing, and that is this. Um, our goal on the plays, the thing is to go all the way through the entire Shakespeare canon. So depending on who you ask, that's either 37 plays or 39 plays. So the goal is to do all of those plays, but there are some plays, Heidi, let's be honest. Some plays don't, uh, they don't quite necessarily merit a five act discussion. Okay. Agreed. The Agreed. play that I'm thinking of is a play called Cymbeline, which is one of the last plays that uh, Real weird. Real weird play. Very weird. It's <laughs> Bizarre. Very weird. It's like a weird dream. It is. And it's got about, it's got about like four different genres that are all kind of mixed up. It's a romance. It's a fantasy. It's a revenge plot. It's, it's a lot of different things. Um, so for plays like that, we're going to do, instead of the five full act treatment, we're just going to do one-off podcasts. My friend, Madeline Wheeler, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Southern California, really loves Cymbeline. And she has a really great theory that I'm increasingly subscribing to, that there's an actually better, there's a better ending to that play written by someone other than Shakespeare. If you are curious about this theory that Mighty and that uh, Madeline and I are going to put forward, 
uh, we encourage you to listen to Cymbeline. It should be coming out in about three weeks and it'll just be a one-off. So we will be doing some other plays like that, that instead of giving the full treatment, we'll just do a single episode. So if you want to kind of explore the play, you're, you're curious about it, but you don't feel like, man, I just don't know that I can handle seven hours on Cymbeline. This is designed for you. That's the plan. So be listening to those as they come out and we'll try to post announcements here late in podcasts about what's forthcoming, especially with regards to those single act plays. And I am going to start also doing some standalone podcast about kind of like big pictures about Shakespeare. These are not going to be necessarily dialogues like the one that Heidi and I are having here, but they're going to be more, uh, even though I feel a little bit allergic saying it, a little bit more lectury. Um, I'm going to do one just on Shakespeare. Who was he? Like, when did he live? What were his concerns? What was his education and background? Like, we haven't done that. We, we talk about Shakespeare, obviously, on this show all the time, like biographical aspects of Shakespeare. But we've not yet done kind of like a big picture um, overview of the man himself. So I'll be um, doing podcasts like that. I'm going to do a whole podcast dedicated just to his education. And those of you who are classically educated or seeking to provide a classical education for your students, you're going to be really encouraged when you hear about Shakespeare's uh, educational background, because it's, it's like a quintessential, it's like a classical, classical education. So hopefully that'll be both illuminating and encouraging. Now, Heidi, I return to you. What should our listeners be reading for, viewing for, as we approach Act Five, uh, the ultimate, the concluding act of Richard II. I think the the natural question is, well, what happens to Richard after right. he's deposed, right? And so look for that for sure, um, knowing that such a melodramatic, despairing, and theatrical character cannot have a boring end. Um, look for all of the different threads of personality, uh, you know, his end is just as we would expect. He ends as he has lived. And so um, look for more, more unfolding drama. Um, I also wanted to give a couple of tips on teaching, if that's okay. Mm, yeah. Um, so this act has um, a really, really important um, image and a very famous image uh, that we didn't get to talk to you or to talk about yet, Tim, which is uh, the image of uh, Richard sitting on his own throne as he is saying goodbye and gazing into a mirror and reflecting on kingship. Um, and it's a very famous scene. And it's one of those that you have to actually see it. If you can see a production, several productions even of this fam very famous mirror speech um when richard is gay he gaze he asks for a looking glass and he gazes uh into uh this looking glass and reflects on you know very important word there right reflects on what it was like to be the king and what it's like to say goodbye to the king to being the king and um and it's a very self-absorbed melodramatic speech as we might come to expect from richard and very beautiful at the same time um and this is important and might be worth thinking about and teaching because uh, there was a, a very famous uh, long history literary tradition of uh, writing 
um, advice and wisdom to kings. And, and this literary tradition is called the Mirror of Kings. And you can find a very long literary tradition from ancient times um, of, of advice that is written to kings called the Mirror of Kings. Um, and Richard, of course, fulfills none of them. And yeah, is obsessed with himself, yeah. constantly gazing at himself, and he won't leave the throne without looking at himself. And it's this very powerful image of the contrast between what it takes to be a wise king and this very foolish and self-absorbed king who can't even walk out of the throne room without gazing at himself, right? Um, and then, and it has like you know this image of Narcissus in it. And so, in teaching this play, I would recommend kind of dwelling on this idea of mirrors. Um, Another three ideas for teaching. One is to go through this particular scene and really act, excuse me, this particular act, and then maybe all of them, and look for references to Christ and Judas, to Jesus being betrayed uh, by his friends, because Richard and the bishop really rely very heavily on uh, this imagery of Christ being betrayed, the rightful king of the universe being betrayed by those who should be listening to him. And it's an interesting discussion. You can kind of mark those in your um, in your text with your students and then talk, you know, what do you think? What do you think Shakespeare's saying here? Um, that's, a, that's a rich discussion. Um, also, another set of images that's really important, I think, um, and useful in delving into this with students is the images of light um, and the sun. That in the beginning of the play in Acts 1 through 3, Richard is the sun, and here he refers to Bolingbroke being the sun and mm-hmm. rising in ascendancy. Um, he also uses that same image of rising and lowering with the tears and the um and the buckets of water that you read, Tim. Mm, yeah. Um, that as one side, think of it like scales. Um, on one side of the scale, Richard's bucket is sinking because it's full of tears. And and then um, gaining an ascendancy on the other side of the scale is then Bolingbroke's light bucket that's not full of care yet, right? Um, and so there's, I think that these are good teaching tools so that you don't have to come in with your theories, but can just kind of point these things out with your students and ask them to connect it, right? Where do you see light being used? Where do you see Jesus being referenced? Um, and what what do you think Shakespeare's doing with these multiple references in different contexts? And that opens up a rich conversation. So it's not just kind of lecturing at your students about your own right. pet theory the way I did today about my <laughs> pet theory of Richard Sloth. Don't do that. So- That's what, in fairness, <laughs> That's what you're here for in the podcast. That's exactly what you're here for in the podcast. But yeah, like t- teaching it, introducing it to students for the first time. Yeah. A different, appro- you're recommending a different approach. Yeah. Heidi, I'm I want to look. Any f- final thoughts from you, yeah. Tim? I want to return to a question that we introduced in act three, which is about Shakespeare's craft. I am a subscriber to Stephen Greenblatt's, um, understanding that at this point in Shakespeare's career, he does something that I don't know has really been done before. And it's certainly been done since, but there's an, there's kind of an ability to externalize introversion in Richard II that we are going to see in the great tragedies, especially Hamlet, but some of the other, um, tragedies that we love so much, Macbeth, King Lear, there's a whole facet to the development and exposure of character that Shakespeare has begun to develop, I think, in this play, Richard II, Mm -hmm. and we'll see much more of it 
in the prison scene in Act Five when Richard is speaking to himself. And I just, I think it is a remarkable achievement by Shakespeare. And I want to explore that more in Act Five because the next, next season in the plays, the thing, we're going to talk about uh, Hamlet. And I think kind of being prepared for this incredible, um, incredible power that Shakespeare has to reveal character in this externalized, staged way with Richard II and Hamlet and some of his other tragic heroes is worth really spending some time on. So that's something that I'm going to talk about with you um, in Act 5 next week. Heidi, um, I want to say all everyone who still wants to participate in discussions about the plays, the thing, the plays that we're doing, we're still going to use the Close Reads Facebook page for that. So please weigh in there. We're going to have a question and answer session coming up soon, and we'll send out a call for questions via that Facebook page. But um, Heidi, I actually want to play that closing monologue that you referred to, the famous um, looking glass monologue from Richard II. We're going to close up shop with that. So before we do that, I just want to say, hey, thanks. I look forward to seeing you next week for the final episode or the, or the final Bye. discussion before we get to our Q&A on Richard II. Mm-hmm. Give me that glass. And therein will I read. No deeper wrinkles yet? <laughs> Hath sorrow struck so many blows upon this face of mine and made no deeper wound? Oh, flattering glass, like to my followers in <coughs> prosperity that dost beguile me. Was this face the face that every day under his household roof to keep 10,000 men? Was this the face that, like the sun, did make beholders wink? Is this the face which faced so many follies? That was at last outfaced by Bullingbrook. The brittle glory shineth in this face. As brittle as the glory is the face. But there it is, cracked in a hundred shivers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.